Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. So before moving here to Conway, I pastored a church in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. I got a map for you. For some reason, people think I'm from West Virginia. I am not from West Virginia. Let me show you this. All right, so here's where I'm from. I'm from this area of Virginia, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania. This is home. That's where I lived for 30-some years. And I lived here, and then I went and pastored a church all the way down here in the Appalachian Mountains. And one of the things that happened when I was talking to the church, and they said, well, you know, how do you feel about moving to the mountains and pastoring? I said, well, Virginia is Virginia. I was naive, wasn't I? That's the equivalent of saying Ainer is the same as Charleston. There's a little bit of difference, even though you're still in South Carolina. I said, I'll be fine. It's no big deal. But boy, did I find out the culture was radically different from more northern Virginia. This isn't northern Virginia. There's a lot we could talk about there, but it's not pertinent to the conversation today. But more northern Virginia than it is southwest Virginia. And one thing in particular that I took from adjusting to was, was grass cutting. You see, Sunday afternoon is the most relaxing part of my week. It's the furthest I am from preaching on Sunday once again. And if you didn't know, preaching and developing sermons every week is rather stressful. Just think about the most stressful part of your job and imagine doing it in front of a whole bunch of people. Imagine it going on the internet forever knowing that your future self is going to beat up your past self and your mama's going to see it, (laughs) right? There's a lot there. And so Sunday afternoon is a unique time because I finished my sermon. I'm not thinking about the next one until Monday comes. And so what I would do on Sunday afternoons is I would do yard work. I'd work around the house and just kind of relax and not think about anything, get my chores done that I didn't do all weekend, usually catching up on sermon stuff. And I remember someone coming to me and talking to me saying, hey, listen, Brian, you can't cut the grass on Sundays. I said, what do you mean? They said, you can't, you can't cut the grass. It's the Lord's day. It's the Sabbath day. And you can't work on Sundays. And I said, well, the, the Sabbath isn't on Sunday, that's Saturday, and you can't work on Sundays. Do you know what I do for a living? Like, the main part of my job is on what? Sundays. I said, I work for, on Sundays all the time. They said, yeah, but, but that's different. And I just looked at him with a blank stare on my face, like I didn't know how to proceed in this conversation. You see, I ran into a version of cultural Christianity I wasn't accustomed to. And I knew biblically and theologically I was right. But no matter how right I thought I was, this person thought I was wrong. And it bothered them. 
It was stretching their faith, kind of messing it up, thinking, what is a pastor doing working in his yard on Sundays? And of course, my house was in a place so everybody could see. I didn't know that moving there, but I found out pretty quick. And so I had to make a choice as a pastor. What was I going to do? Was I going to continue to cut my grass on Sundays because I knew I was right and I was right? Or would I submit to this person's understanding of the Sabbath and resting for the Lord? Would I submit to his understanding, give up my rights, even though it was inconvenient for me, for this person's benefit? Well, it doesn't matter what Brian eight years ago did, okay? Just recognize that I have grown spiritually, and my oldest has grown, and I just make him cut the grass on Saturdays, right? But that kind of situation is what we find ourselves in today. And what makes it so difficult to talk about is in Christianity, Christians, we want a bunch of rules. We want do's and don'ts of what we're allowed to do. But a lot of our faith, what we're going to learn today, a lot of our faith is based on who's in the room. One author, um, excuse me, the one another commands in the Bible are very clear. And we'll have to spend our time this morning discussing this whole idea of, and we've talked about it before, you remember, you can be morally right, legally right, factually right, but then spiritually wrong. Today is all about how to love one another. Let's dive into what Paul's dealing with now. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we've managed to get to a different chapter, I'm pretty excited about that. He says this, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. He says, now regarding your question, so they've asked him, about foods that have been offered to idols. Now let's set the stage to understand what's going on back then. You see, sacrifices weren't just a part of the Jewish culture. They were part of ancient religions as well. And, and where Paul's at, they would come and they would offer up sacrifices to their gods, and they would get split in three different ways. Part of the sacrifice was burnt up as an offering. Part of the sacrifice was given to the priest. And part of the sacrifice was given back to the sacrificer. And often the priest doing sacrifices all day, they wouldn't be able to eat all of the meat that was given to them. And so they did. It just sounds smart. They would sell the meat. Right, they would sell it to the local areas, and then they would turn around and resell it again. Just think pre-freezer times. What do you do with all the meat hanging around? And not only this, the restaurants were in fact located in the temples. And so not to associate with any of this meat that's been offered up to false gods would cut them off socially, excuse me, socially, from going to parties, eating at restaurants, because they didn't have restaurants on every corner. Think pre-delivery you know, trucks, things like that. So why not have a restaurant where all the meat already is? And that's the culture they live in. And so how do they go on? They're asking, they say, hey, the food, the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, what are we supposed to do? If we can't eat meat, like we're not going to be able to eat any of this now. What does this look like? How do we function? It's kind of the equivalent for us asking um, if someone told us not to eat processed food. We'd say, but how? Right? It's, it's everywhere. How, how do you do that? And so it's not an easy thing to do, and they're trying to navigate 
how do we become Christ followers or how do we live as Christ followers with this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Like, what do we do with this? And he says this, verse 2. He said, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about the issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. And so what he's doing here is setting the tone for actually the next three chapters. We're not going to get through it all today, but he says, some of your versions read, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he's focusing here on the arrogance that can come from knowledge. He's saying we know knowledge makes us feel important. Knowledge can lead to arrogance. And the people who think they know a lot, what? He says they don't really know much. And this is just a true statement. Those who know they know generally don't really know that much. But those who aren't very sure probably know more than they think they know. You see, the more you know about a topic the more you know you don't know about a topic. Does that make sense? The more you focus in, the more you realize how much you haven't read, the other opinions that are out there. You, you are opened up to all this stuff that you're like, hey, I haven't got around to reading all that, so I know I don't know that much, but I do know a little bit, right? Think expert. That's where expert lies. Experts are experts because they're continuing to learn. But he says those who think they know They haven't really dove into a topic that deep. They have a limited amount of information. And generally, those who think they know but don't really know are the most difficult people. You probably have in your family think Thanksgiving coming up, right? The most difficult people to actually have a conversation with. And this is a warning saying, hey, knowledge can lead to arrogance. Thinking you know and you've arrived and you got it. Paul's like, hey, just be careful with all of that. Because for the Christian, it's not just about knowing a lot of things, but it's about loving. Our faith, our knowledge should lead us to do something. He continues, verse 3. He says, we all know that we all, excuse me, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So it's not about what you know, but what about God knows about you. Knowing God and loving God is the point of our faith. And he says love strengthens the church. Love is how you get on God's radar. If you want God to intervene and bless and be a part of your life, it's not about just knowing more. But it's about loving him and loving other people. The point of our faith isn't to know everything. But the point of our faith is to love other people. And so he's going to practically work this out with this, this idea about the meats. And again, remember this. You can be legally right. You can be morally right. You can be factually right but you can still be spiritually wrong. And it gets very complicated. He's going to set the tone. Here it goes, verse 4. He says, so what about eating meat that's been offered to the idols? Well, we know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. 
There, have, there may be many so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, this is a great confession of the faith, but for us there is one God, the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. And so this is a great confession of faith. Paul saying, yeah, people believe all sorts of things, but we know the truth. And his point is they know, he knows, that the idols that the meat is sacrificed to, they're not real. And so if they're not real, then they're sacrificing to what? Nothing. Right? It's a figment of their imagination. It's not a real thing. It's not. So really, they're just sacrificing to absolutely nothing that's just wood or metal. Therefore, the meat offered to these idols means nothing. It doesn't really matter. To which some of us say, wait, wait, wait. What about the forces behind idolatry? Don't worry, he'll talk about demons in a couple of weeks. You're just going to have to hang on. We'll get there. He continues in verse 7. He says, however, so these idols aren't really anything. Then he says, however, verse 7 He says, it's true that we can't win God. Nope, verse 7. Don't have verse 7. I'm going to tell you what verse 7 says. He says, however, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real God, real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. He says, so while you're right, those idols aren't a real thing. There are real people who have real problems because of how they grew up. They grew up thinking all those false gods were real. They used to participate in those practices. For them, it's a very real thing. It triggers things. He says, so you need to be aware of the other people. You need to be aware of what eating that meat might do to them. So if you're eating that meat that they have trouble with, now their conscience is violated, although it's not real. They now have an issue with it, and you need to think about them. He says in verse 8, he says it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. He said food is food. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. And so his, he says, listen, your argument's sound. That sacrifice to those false idols, they don't, they don't mean anything. They're not real. He says, but don't use your freedom in that, knowing it's not real, to then hurt other people. They're convicted. They have culture issues, and you need to work through that. And you say, well, wait, 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 wait. Brian, are you saying that their conscience is my responsibility? To which Paul says, yep. If you're the stronger, if you're more knowledgeable, if you're the one who know, you, know, you know more and you've been around longer, you're now responsible for their conscience. It's your responsibility to look out for the weaker person. It's your responsibility to look out for the newer Christian, the one who doesn't know as much. Saying, look, you need to look after other people, not use your freedom to hurt and violate and just show how right you are to other people. Verse 10, he says, for 
If others see you with your superior knowledge, eating the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be, say that last word with me, destroyed. He couldn't have picked a more powerful word, could he? Would they be hurt? Would they be sad? No, he says they will be destroyed. Like what you do matters in regards to how other people feel about things. And this is a powerful, uh, powerful point. You're destroying somebody, and check this out, because you are right. And you're standing on being right. But remember, the point of our knowledge and the point of our faith isn't about being right. It's about leading to loving other people and helping other people. And most of us grew up in this country with our idea of our personal rights and our personal freedoms. And our personal freedoms are more important than how someone else feels. And Paul says, nope, wrong. Your personal freedoms and your personal rights aren't more important than another human being. And so he gives us this new category, this new way of thinking for the Christian on how to practically put others first, how to love other people. And here's the, here's the critical, most important thing about this whole idea, although it's not that easy to apply in every area of life. He says this. He says, and when, check this out, and when you what? Sin against the other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong. You are what? You're like, but wait, I, did, I didn't do something that was a sin. He's like, yeah. He's like, but, I, but it's not a sin. He's like, yes, it's not a sin that you did that. And I'm right. Yes, you're right. But when you did it, you hurt that other person. You're like, yeah, but it's not my problem. He says, no, it is your problem. You're now sinning. So there's a sin in doing what's right if it hurts other people. You're like, Brian, this is complicated. I know. Welcome to Christianity. It's a thinking faith. It can be challenging. It can be hard because we have to think about constantly who's in the room. How is what I'm doing affecting other people? So now the sin that wasn't a sin, but the actions that you're committing are a sin falls on you. And so he's saying, don't stand on your rights. Don't stand on your freedom if it hurts another person. Give up your rights for their benefit. Give up the thing you're free and allowed to do if it causes them to stumble. In other words, just eat meat at home. Right? Just eat it at home. Go have a steak by yourself. Like, it's okay. You don't have to shove it down someone else's throat or do it in front. He says, hey, go eat at home. Verse 13, he says, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, this is where you got to love Paul. He's like, I'll never eat meat again. It's like, Paul, you could just eat at home. Why do you got to be so dramatic about it? Because he's Paul, and that's who Paul is. He says, I'll never eat it again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. So how serious do we take this? Paul says, I'll give up my rights to eat meat if it helps other people avoid sin. This is what it looks like to put other people first. And Paul makes the same argument in Romans 14. It's a great small group discussion or family discussion about the weaker brother, stronger brother. Go home, read that on your own. I'll let you study it. 
But the whole point is simply this. The stronger person, the one with more knowledge, the one who has been at church longer, you give up your rights and your freedoms for the benefit of other people. Now, does this mean that we don't call people out on sin? Well, of course that's not what it is. This isn't a morally thing. He's not saying right or wrong. It's something very different. What he's doing is calling you and me to grow in our faith. And he's saying the more responsible, excuse me, the more mature you are, the more knowledge you have, you have a been, excuse me, you have a responsibility to look out for the younger Christian, the newer Christian in the faith. And this is counter to how we feel and what we believe, isn't it? We generally think the longer I've been around, the more rights I have, and the more things should go my way. We don't necessarily say that, but it's common to human nature, right? Is it just me? You wouldn't want to admit this? You're like, I'm not, I'm not falling for that, Brian. It's true. The longer you've been around, you're like, hey, this is mine. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He's saying the longer you've been around, the more you need to give up your freedom, give up your rights for the benefit of other people. He's saying look out for other people's faith rather than just what you can do. Look out for how other people are growing rather than just what you like. And the applications for this, folks, are absolutely endless. I mean, the more, the more mature Christians giving up their rights for the benefit of a new generation of Christians, does that preach? I mean, we can go that way if you want. I just figured we got it. Like, we got, we got, we got the application. The longer you've been around, the more you need to give up what you've been around in order to help other people. But I've chosen to talk about some more personal issues, and I've talked... I'm going to talk about three for us to work through. They shouldn't be too, um, well, you'll see. We're going to talk about alcohol, modesty, and COVID masks. Yeah, I figured I'd just do all of them together. Might as well. We're just going to talk about all three. Make sure we just get it all out there, okay? So how does this work? So the easiest and direct application to all of this is alcohol. Okay, alcohol. Now, hang in there with me, especially if you grew up in the South, okay? Just hang on. Because for the record, biblically, there is nothing sinful about drinking alcohol for many people. Getting drunk, yes, it's a sin. Drinking a beer or a glass of wine is not a sin. Now, are there dangers in drinking? Absolutely. Read Proverbs. Proverbs talks all about there, all about that. There's dangers with anything that's powerful. We just spent about six weeks talking about how powerful sex can be and the dangers associated with that, right? So alcohol is powerful in the same way. And we don't have to argue about this, folks. Just for the record, Jesus didn't drink grape juice, okay? And nor was wine way different back then. I've heard that. Folks, people got drunk back then. That's why it tells us not to get what? Drunk. I mean, like, I'm just letting you know. You couldn't get drunk. if it, Yeah, you, you get the point. But that's why it tells us not to. But the whole point of it is you and me, we have to know who's in the room when it comes to alcohol because it's powerful. You see, years ago, I encouraged one of my great friends at the time to get back into church. 
I said, come on, man, you got married. I said, it's time. You need to get back in this. And one of the pastors was inviting him. Um, My buddy started coming to the church, and one of the associate pastors started inviting him to come out and watch football. And he wasn't wise in how he asked my friend. He kept asking my friend, hey, let's go out. Let's have some beers. Let's eat some wings, and let's watch football. He didn't know my friend at all. And my friends turned him down a few times, but my buddy wanted to get connected to the church. He's like, hey, I want to get community. I want to do this. I have one of the pastors ask me to go out, but I can't go out. And like he was in this weird situation. And so my buddy called me. He said, Brian, he said, why is one of the pastors in the church keep asking me to drink? You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And to which I said, yep. And I had to dive into that situation. You see, for him, he was really getting messed up. Like, this is exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's really getting messed up because he's a a recovering alcoholic. And then a leader of the church keeps inviting him out to go have drinks. Now, was the pastor in sin for wanting to go watch football and drink a beer? No, that's not a sin. But asking somebody to go out and drink with you that you don't know? To go, uh, go have drinks, is that wise? No. And we know that alcohol and Christianity have a weird relationship in our country, specifically Baptist, if we're going to be honest about it. And he knew that. And this pastor was trying to be a little provocative, right? Show how cool the church is, how the church is open to some things that may be counterculture. But he wasn't wise enough. And this pastor wasn't me, by the way. I'm just saying. Like, I would tell you if it were me. This, this actually wasn't me. Okay, it wasn't me. But he didn't understand his actions, and he didn't understand that his trying to be cool was breaking and about to destroy one of my good, close friends because he was fighting his own addictions and struggles, and he surely didn't need a pastor inviting him along on that journey. Now, the addictions were not the pastor's addictions. But a pastor, you and me as Christians, we need to be aware of potential problems other people have. And we give up our rights in order to benefit and help other people. You need to know who's in the room before you do things like that on a deep, intimate level, not to cause and not to lead other people towards sin. You see, a mark of maturity is giving up your rights for the benefit of other people. So if eating onions bothers people, folks, <laughs> give up your right. Don't cook onions anymore. Maybe those aren't the same things. We're going to move on. Let's jump to section number two. How about modesty? Does it matter what people wear? Does it matter what people wear to church? What does it even mean to be modest? And I know this is super uncomfortable because culture changes. It feels like daily nowadays. But there seems to be a general understanding that in the church, modesty is supposed to be a a thing, something that Christians should strive for. And so let's dive into what Paul says about this. It's found in 2 Timothy, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy. And he's actually applying this principle. We'll see it play out. He says this. And he says, I want the women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way. Check this out. I love this. By the way, they what? Fix their hair. Don't do your hair, ladies. (laughs) 
If your hair is dead, you're wrong. It's a sin. I'm just letting you know. It's what it says. Or by wearing gold or pearls, or check this out, or expensive clothes. Yeah, people didn't know this was in the Bible, did they? We're going to talk about it. He says, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attracted by the good things they do. Now, why I think we all chuckle, at least I chuckle at this verse, is because generally I hear the older generation telling the younger generation they need to be more modest and they need to dress different. While they are wearing their expensive clothes, their big jewelry, and their hair is dead. Right? Are you with me? It's true, isn't it? Oh, this is what they were talking about in Sunday school. Things like that that I say. Never mind. Moving on. Okay. So we are told all the time in the culture to wear your Sunday's best. You ever heard that before? To wear your best. What does Paul actually say? Don't. What do you do with that? What do you do when the culture says to do one thing, but Paul clearly says, do not wear your nicest stuff. Do not wear your most expensive stuff. So how do we work all this stuff out? What I think Paul's doing and how we're going to work through this is this idea of know who's in the room. Know what you're doing, right? Is wearing gold necessarily wrong? We'll talk about that another day. Let's just keep moving on. He says this, listen. Modesty does mean what we gather from Paul from this section. What we do mean is modesty does mean not to draw attention to yourselves. And why is this important for women specifically? Men, it applies to you too. But specifically for women, this is very important because the culture has been telling women for thousands of years that they need to be adorned and decorated. Right? That's what culture for thousands of years says. Women, you need to be this certain way. And Paul is saying, look, ladies, you are more than an object. You are far more than an object. You are a human being who's loved by God, and you don't need to dress in a way of just worrying if people think you're cute and if you're pretty. Paul says you're more than that. You're more than how you look. You're more than what you wear. And it gets complicated, right? But he says this, he says, first, wear decent and appropriate clothing. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's just be direct. Some things are appropriate for the beach, but they're not appropriate for the church. Can we agree on that? And some things just aren't appropriate for the beach either. I'm just going to say it, okay? I'm just, we live there. Some things people should just not wear at all. But how we apply this, for those of you who like to dress, however, he says, you need to know who's in the room. You need to think about how your dressing may affect other people. You see, the Bible is very clear that human beings are messed up and the church is a hospital for sinners. And we know that people struggle with sexual immorality and the last thing they need to do is come to a place of worship and then have that struggle in the church. And so basically, if you think what you're wearing is going to get you a lot of Instagram likes... If it draws a lot of attention, you shouldn't wear it in the church. Because Paul specifically talking about places to worship here. He's like, yeah. You're like, but Brian, that's not fair. No one said it was. Fairness is not part of the equation. That's Paul's point. He's saying, listen, you need to be strong enough and you need to be wise enough and think through what you do and what you wear, how it may affect another person. 
And if it draws attention to yourself, like if a lot of people look at it thinking, oh, it's so cute and it's so pretty and it's so amazing, he says, don't wear it. Like, don't, don't wear it. Do something different. He's saying, just know who's in the room. See, what y'all don't know is I could be the Rock Dwayne Johnson stunt double. Me and him are about the same size. We got the same build. Like, y'all just don't know that, right? It's, it's, we're about the same. But I wear baggy clothes, even though they keep shrinking around this area for some reason. All right, I wear baggy clothes because I don't want to put that on you, right? Y'all don't need to know about those things. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, trying to laugh a little bit, right? Because we know that's not true. All right, so that's one thing modesty means. What else does modesty mean? In the same way, modesty means not showing off how much money you have. But specifically, not showing off how fancy you are. Because what if all the nice things you have make other people feel bad for the stuff they don't have? What if your fanciness will stop people from coming to church? What if your fanciness will stop people from giving? What if they're tempted like, hey, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't give back to the Lord so I can look nice and I can be dressed up and I can wear the suits and I can wear the ties and I can have the gold. And then I'll be culturally and socially more accepted if I wear that stuff. So maybe I shouldn't give. Maybe I shouldn't do those things. What if your fanciness caused other people to stumble? What if your elaborate dress caused people not to want to come to church because they felt like they couldn't fit in because they can't afford to look fancy? You see, Brian, we all know that happens, don't we? And that's exactly why Paul says, hey, don't wear your expensive stuff. Don't dress up. And so to take Paul's statement, maybe we should never wear ties again if it saves some, right? That's just where, like, that's, that's the stance we need to take. But see, rather than arguing about your rights and about what people wear, Paul says, just think about the other person in the room. What's appropriate in maybe some of your social circles perhaps isn't appropriate in a place of worship. Perhaps you don't want to make people feel better, get on them. And this idea of where your Sunday's best, I'm just letting you know, it's not biblical. Exact says the exact opposite. Because we don't want to make people feel bad for what they don't have. Because the whole point is we don't come to worship to show off. We come to worship to worship Jesus Christ, our God, and through the power of the Spirit. Like It's not about everybody else, but we're social people, and things happen, so we just need to think through this stuff. Again, it's not easy. So let's talk about the last one, COVID masks. Hopefully we're far enough away from that where this isn't going to be explosive. If it is, please email scott at fbcconway.org. He loves fielding these kind of things. So I have come to the conclusion. Listen, please, just listen to me all the way through. I have come to the conclusion that wearing a COVID mask was the spiritually correct and right thing to do. Not because the Bible tells us to wear a mask, nor does the Bible teach us anything about pandemics. Though if leprosy breaks out, we got you covered, okay? We do know about leprosy. It tells us plenty about that. I hated wearing masks. And I need to tell you that up front. I could not stand them at all. I would get super frustrated, and I'm not proud of that. It's just true. I've told you before, I have authority issues, all right? So when they said, you have to wear it, I said, oh, yeah, I do. No, I don't. But I was wrong. I was wrong because so many people were scared, and rightly so. 
And as Christians, we should give up our rights if it makes other people feel safe. It was such a practical way to show love and care and concern for other people because there are plenty of commands in the Bible about loving others, caring for others, being patient with others, kindness and gentleness. And for those of you who knew all about COVID masks and you knew all about the conspiracies behind them, I get it. Look, I I got it. I know you know. But what does Paul says if you know a lot about something? Give it up for the benefit of someone else. So check this out. That means if you are smarter, you let it go for the other person. Which is a convicting thing, isn't it? Because we want to stand on our rights. He's like, no, no, if you really do know more, give it up for the other person. Let it go for their benefit. And I hope that we never experience anything like that pandemic ever again. But what I saw, and you probably did too, I saw Christians miss an opportunity to put the love of Jesus Christ on display. Rather than focusing and rallying around Jesus in the midst of all of that uncertainty, people rallied around their political leaders. But folks, we need to rally around Jesus and think through this stuff next time. That it's not about that. If our neighbors are concerned, then we do it for them. We don't stand on our rights because they are real people that have real feelings. And we give up how we feel in order to care and love on other people. Folks, the church should have led the way in loving others in those moments. And for the record, a mask wasn't a political stance. Any more than a surgeon wearing one before your surgery is a political stance. It was just a thing people did to care and love for other people and to protect them. So even if you think the masks were pointless, the person's feelings weren't. And that's what Paul's telling us to work through. How to love other people, how to care for other people. Even if it's inconvenient, even if you don't like it, you do it for whom? The other person. You see, the applications are endless. But just remember, you can be morally right, legally right, and factually right, but spiritually wrong. Because Christianity is more than a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. It's a faith that's modeled after our Savior who gave up his rights for our benefit. He died on a cross so we could live. He was strong but chose to be weak. We model our lives and we give up because he ultimately gave up for us. And to become a mature follower of Jesus means that we know who's in the room. And we pay attention to that. We love them by giving up our freedom, by giving up our rights. If it helps them grow in their faith and not stumble into sin. So let's be the Christians that give up our rights and our arguments to bring peace and unity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Christian maturity is. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and your abounding grace that continually draws us closer to you. Father, help us in our weaknesses. Help us be mature Christians looking out for the benefit of other people. And Lord, we all have egos. We all have pride. We all have our certain things that we want to hold on to and not give up. But Father, we just submit those to you this morning and ask for your help in that. Help us choose to love people, to help people find you and grow in you. 
Father, let us be the people who look after those who are struggling with temptations and sin. Let us be wise enough to know when we need to give up our rights and freedoms for the salvation and the goodness of other people. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus gave up his rights so we could live. Father, let us be the people who display that daily. And help us this week as we gather together with family and friends. Lord, we're all going to face situations and people that kind of aggravate us and conversations and to go places where we could argue. So, Father, let us just be the mature one, the stronger one, that gives up the right to be right and instead chooses to love and bring harmony and unity in the midst of that. Father, we love you and we thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.